since the uh, terrorist attacks of September 11th and the subsequent threats that have followed, many in our country find themselves increasingly paralyzed by fear. Fear is gripping our nation. There's the fear of death, of losing that which we count as valuable, the fear of uncertainty and the negative financial ramifications that follow, the fear of flying, and most recently, the fear of anthrax. And the Bible has much to say about the subject of fear. For example, in Proverbs 29:25, it warns that the fear of man brings a snare or a trap. Good example of that is the airline airline travel has decreased by 40% since the attacks, partially resulting in the loss of 140,000 jobs and counting. In addition, I came across an article that I thought you might find interesting, and that is that uh, Northwest Airlines takes sweeteners off all of its flights. Northwest removes sugar substitutes and powdered creamers amid anthrax scares. Northwestern, Northwest Airlines has pulled artificial sweeteners and powdered coffee creamer from all flights amid concerns about white powder found on two flights. The carrier removed packets of the powdery substances Wednesday to prevent delays and ease fears amid the anthrax threat. On Monday, passengers were detained for more than an hour in Detroit after a white powdery substance, apparently food crumbs, was found in the cabin of the plane. Also on Monday, a, sub, a substance was found on top of... A, baggage that was being removed from a jet in Burlington, Vermont, and as a precaution, officials recommended antibiotics for the passengers and crew. But the state health department said Friday the test showed that substance was not anthrax, and now they were trying to find everyone who was on the flight to tell them to stop taking the antibiotics. Salt Lake, terrified by the possibilities, Utah residents are fearful the 2002 Winter Games will make them a target of terrorism, and on and on and on it goes. And you know what? And if such fears, if not for its tragic consequences, are almost humorous. I know a young uh, collegiate who had a summer job as a welder's assistant, and he was uh, building a hospital. He had never welded before in his life. He was afraid of heights, and wouldn't you know it, they put him to work on the seventh floor. And uh, vast sections of steel beams were jetting out over nowhere. Finally, an incredible hulk of a guy came walking up to him. He was a welder, and he said to this young man, he said, What's the matter, son? He goes, Are you scared? He looked at him and said, Scared? I've been trying to tell you for the last two weeks that I quit. He goes, But the words just wouldn't come out of my mouth. You know, frightened, paralyzed by all of it. You know, what's interesting is going back to Proverbs 29, 25, the proverb continues by saying this, the fear of man brings a snare or a trap, but he who trusts in the Lord will be exalted. And that's the message of hope, that we who have come to know God by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ have to offer those who are paralyzed by fear. As Christians, we can offer hope to all who fear death, for the Bible teaches that those who have a right relationship with God have nothing to fear. In fact, precious in the sight of the Lord are the death of His saints. And when we're absent from the body, we have confidence that we'll be present with the Lord. We know that God is in control of all things. David wrote, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the defense of my life. Whom shall I dread? 
He went on to say, Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for thou art with me. And thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Every human being walks through the valley of the shadow of death. It's just that sometimes it becomes more apparent than at others. But every one of us are terminal. And yet David said with great confidence and assurance that even though I do walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I have nothing to fear, for you are with me. See, I don't know about you, but when I read verses like that or promises like that and assurances as such, in the fear of the Lord there is strong confidence. And in His, and in, and in his children, and in Him His children have refuge. In the fear of the Lord, there is strong confidence. And in Him, His children have refuge. Now, I don't know about you, but I love hearing good news. How many of you like to hear good news? Let me see. Everybody likes good news, right? Everybody likes good news. Everybody likes to hear, man, the market's back up again. Everything's going good. You know, everybody likes good news. Everybody wants to hear good news. Now, if everybody wants to hear good news, why is it? That we don't like to share it. Just a thought. We all like to hear it. And I know in every area of life, think about it, every area of life, in whatever area that you find yourself and you find that you have, you are the possessor of good news. You cannot wait to call the person that it affects. I've got good news for you. I've got great news for you. Hey, I just want to let you know that you guys are going to do the job. I just want to hurry up and call and tell you we just finalized it. You are going to do the job. Oh, man. Thanks for calling. I'm so glad you called. I like hearing good news. You know, the check's in the mail. No, in fact, no, it's not even. I'm bringing it over personally, and it's a cashier's check. Oh, well, that's just great. I like hearing good news. That's so nice. You know, share the good news. Oh, I've got good news for you. Your cholesterol is down. Yes. You know, that's good. And you're still alive. That's good. You know? You know, we all like good news. Hey, got good news. You know, the diet, it's working. I'm down 10 pounds and going and it's keep on dropping. And, and, oh, we all get excited about good news. Then why don't we know how to share the good news? In our ongoing study through the book of Acts, we come to a passage that reminds us what is involved in sharing the good news. The greatest news that anybody could ever hear, and that is that God is in control of all things, that God loves people, that God has provided a remedy for the sin of the world, for the ailments of man, that God has taken it upon himself to free men and women from the consequences of sin, hell, and destruction and condemnation before God. That is the greatest news that anyone could ever hear. That if they come into a right relationship with God, the day that they die, they will be present with the Lord for all of eternity and enjoy His presence. Is there anything better than that? The market could go up, but you could go out. That weight you're losing may be because of a disease. I mean, isn't that the first thing that they tell you when you're really sick? It's like, are you losing weight? Oh, I was trying to, but let me tell you something. There's something in you eating you alive. Oh, that's great. Well, that's kind of good news, bad news. You're looking thin, but you're on your way out. So, 
you know, it's like the doctor. I got, you know, good news and bad news. You know, the, the, the good news is you have 24 hours to live. The bad news is I was so busy I was supposed to tell you yesterday. You know, it's, it's kind of like that. So turn with me to Acts chapter 15. And we'll pick it up at verse 36. Sharing the good news. It says, And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and visit the brethren in every city in which we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. And Barnabas was desirous of taking John, called Mark, along with them also. But Paul kept insisting that they should not take him along who had deserted them in Pamphylia and had, gone, had not gone with them to the work. And there arose such a sharp disagreement that they separated from one another. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed, being committed by the brethren to the grace of the Lord. It says, And he was traveling through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. And he came also to Derbe and to Lystra, and behold, a certain disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. And he was well spoken of by the brethren who were in Lystra and Iconium. And Paul wanted this man to go with him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those parts. For they all knew that his father was a Greek. And now while they were passing through the cities, they were delivering the decrees which had been decided upon by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem for them to observe. So the churches were being strengthened in the faith and were increasing in number daily. It says, And they passed through the Phrygian and Galatian region, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come to Mysia, they were trying to go into Bithynia, and the Spirit of Jesus did not permit them. And by, in passing by Mysia, they came down to Troas. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A certain man of Macedonia was standing and appealing to him, saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. The Lord Jesus Christ defined the church's mission when he commanded to believers to go into all the world and to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all the things I've commanded you. And he says, and lo, I'm with you even to the end of the age. There's a general agreement on the necessity of evangelism. For those of you who don't know the word evangelism, it means to proclaim, to be a herald, to proclaim good news. The church's mission is to proclaim good news to the world, that you ha there is hope, that we don't have to fear, that there is a snare and a stumbling block when we fear men. And what God has always said, and Jesus said it best when he said, why do you fear men? All that man can do is, is destroy your body. All that man can do is kill you. That's the worst thing that man can do to man is to kill one another. He says, but if you're going to fear anything, fear God. For God can destroy both body and soul in eternal damnation, a place called hell. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Fearing God, we find hope and confidence. See, we fear everything but God. And it's the fear of the Lord is the beginning of the wisdom. You know, we can all genuinely, genuinely, generally agree and genuinely agree that we should be proclaiming the good news of hope in Jesus Christ to a world that has no hope, to those who are fearful, to those who, you know, have no confidence what to expect after this life into the next. 
we can all agree upon that. It's the methodology that we all struggle with. You know, how that takes place. There's so many different approaches. There's simple presentations of a few verses to sophisticated multimedia productions uh, that try to get across the same message. There's one-on-one encounters that we have with individuals. And then there's citywide evangelistic crusades that invite entire communities to come to a central place to meet. We saw that last week in Fresno as Billy Graham spoke there. We see those types of of, uh, methods that are used. There's books, there's tapes, there's seminars. They all exist to tell and help Christians share this good news with people around them. You would think, though, that good news would be the most natural thing to do. I don't know about you, but no one ever had to share with me how to share the, or, or train me or teach me how to share the good news about, you know, the check being in the mail. Or share the good news about the stock market being up and the investments, you know, are, are, are paying dividends. Nobody had to share with me the good news that, you know, how to call a patient and tell them, I got good news for you, the tests are negative. We got seminars and conferences and books and tapes on how to share the good news that God loves people. I mean, that, I mean, it's a little ironic to me that, you know, we have to go through such approaches. You know, we have booklets that we hand out, the four spiritual laws. Then we've got one, nine steps to peace with God. And then another one, 37 steps to salvation. You know, it's like what, what, with the four spiritual laws, nine steps to peace with God, and 37 ways to be, you know, it's like, what, what's going on? Is it that difficult to be able to share good news with people who have no hope? In this particular passage, there are some principles that are outlined that I want to share with you. And hopefully, it will keep it as simple as possible on how to share this good news with those around us who have no hope. How to share good news with people whose lives are paralyzed by fear. How to share good news that in God we have refuge. He is our ever-present help in time of calamity and distress. And so the first thing that's introduced to us right away is that we see in, in um, Acts 15, 36, the beginning of the passage, we find that there's a right passion that's necessary in order to share this good news. In Acts 15, 36, notice it says, And after some days Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and visit the brethren uh, in every city in which we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. After an interlude of the Jerusalem Council that we learned of the last time we were together where the crucial issue of salvation by grace was decided, the Antioch church went back to the God-ordained business of sharing the good news of salvation with the lost and condemned world. Antioch wasn't a parking lot in which people came and parked their camels or horses or whatever. You know, it wasn't something that they came... It was, it was a launching pad. They saw it as a place to come together to learn, to be equipped, to go out and launch from there into the world in which God had placed them to share the good news of God's love with people that they came in contact with. Can you think of anything more appropriate today to share with your family and your friends and your co-workers and your classmates and your teammates the good news of salvation by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? Can you think of anything more appropriate to share with people around us than the hope that we have in Jesus Christ? See, they had the right passion. 
See, Antioch wasn't this parking lot. It was a launching pad in which they would go forth and they would send messengers out into the world. And it says, that, if you notice, it says, and after some days. We don't know how many days elapsed in between the time the council meeting ended and the time that we, they went back and delivered the good news. Hey, it's settled once and for all. It's by grace we're saved through faith. I had a young man come up to me not too long ago and say, hey, listen, I've got a friend who said to me that all religions are the same. What difference does it make? And I said, wow, you know what? That's a beautiful entrance for you to have a conversation with that person. I would ask him, well, what do you mean all religions are the same? What, what, give me an example of that. What does it mean that all religions are the same or all religions lead to heaven or whatever it is? What are you talking about? Help me understand it. Because it gives you an opportunity to say, you know what? All religions, if you're looking at it from this standpoint, are the same. Religion is man's attempt to reach God. And from that standpoint, it may vary on how that could take place. But in essence, the foundation is the same. Somehow, we have to make an effort to reach God. Christianity is 180 degrees different from all the religions of the world. And that God very specifically says this. You can't reach me. You can't get to me. You can't come to me. You can't work your way to me. I've done everything for you. And I've reached down to you. And I have sent my son, whom I love dearly, to die on the cross in your place, so that if you believe him and his death on your behalf and his resurrection from the dead, then you shall be saved. It's by grace we're saved through faith. Believing what? Believing what God says. He's reached down to us. And we either accept his gift of forgiveness and salvation in Christ or we reject him entirely, and we hop on the bandwagon of those who think they can work their way into heaven. But God says that all your righteousness and efforts are as filthy rags to me. Because why in the world would I send my son to die in your place if there was any other option available for you to reach me? If you could work your way to me, why would I send my son to die for you? And if you think you can add something to it, you are gravely and eternally mistaken. He's done it all. We either believe that or we reject that. We're told that after some days, the important thing is what was taking place during that period of time is that they were teaching and preaching and with many others also the word of the Lord. They were instructing them in the word of God. They were teaching them the truth of God's word. They were equipping the saints for the work of ministry. They were building them up in the word of God so that they would go out and reach the community at large with this good news that God's done it all. All you have to do is receive the gift. He's done it for you. You can't do anything. Stop being frustrated. He's done it all. Here's great news for you. If you're frustrated trying to work your way to heaven, stop doing it. If you're frustrated thinking that you've got a list of things you have to do and things you cannot do, stop worrying about it. i got great news for you. You're driving yourself crazy and you're miserable in your life because you're trying to figure out a way to be pleasing to God. i got great news for you. You can't go that route, so give it up and trust what God has done for you. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. That's the good news. That's the great news. Notice what he said. He says, let us return. He had a passion for people. The key phrases we'll see there is that he wanted to get back into the field. He wanted to go back to where he was, far from being bored in Antioch. Paul's passion was for those who had never heard the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
He was driven by a desire to preach the gospel, especially where it had never been proclaimed. He couldn't wait to meet new people that had never heard about Jesus Christ. He couldn't wait. That was his passion. He says, I am under compulsion, for woe is me if I don't preach the gospel. 1 Corinthians 9.16. He said, man, woe is me if when God brings a person into my life that I don't confront them with the claims of Christ. Hey, have you heard the good news? Think about this for a second. If you met someone and you went to him and said, hey, have you heard the good news? They'd be like, no, what? God loves you. He's provided a way for you to be forgiven. He's provided access to the very presence of God through Jesus Christ who died on the cross in your place, rose again from the dead. He's alive, he's risen, and he offers forgiveness to those who believe in him. That when you die, you'll be absent from your body, you'll be present with God. Have you heard that good news? How long did that take? 15 seconds? Why is that so hard? Paul had a passion for people. Because he was totally convinced that what God said was true. That there is no other way to heaven but through the Lord Jesus Christ. He had a passion for people because he was so convinced that the word of God was true. When it says that those who reject him are rejecting God. And will spend eternity in a place of weeping and mourning and gnashing of teeth. With no do-overs and no get-to-do-it-agains. Eternal damnation. He was so convinced that there was no other name given to men under heaven by which men can be saved. He had a passion to tell people about the good news that God loves people. And he demonstrated his love for us and yet while we were still in rebellion against God that he sent Christ to die for our sins. You see, he said, I want to go back to find out what was going on. He had a passion. He had a burden. He had a burden to go to Rome. If you know anything about the New Testament, he said, I can't wait to go to Rome, man. It was the center of everything, man. All the action was there. Every road, they said, led to Rome because it was the center of the Roman Empire, the greatest empire the world has ever known. Every road led to Rome. He couldn't wait to get there because, logically, he thought, hey, you know what? Once I'm there, I'm going to come in contact with people who are coming from all over the world. They'll get to hear about God's love for them. They'll get to hear that Jesus died for them and rose again from the dead. They'll get to hear that forgiveness is in him and nobody else. Eternal life is found in Christ. When they find out, they accept that, they embrace that, they'll go back home all over the place and they'll let everybody know, man, we're going to get a hold of a lot of people. And yet at the same time, he told, we read in Romans that when he was in Rome, he said, hey, I can't wait to go to Spain too. It wasn't over in Rome. I, I, I want to go to Spain. I can't wait to go to wherever God has people that have never heard. You know, I, I saw a cartoon, it wasn't really a funny one, but it was an ironic one, about someone who was praying at their office, kind of on their lunch break, having their lunch, and their lunch was sitting in front of them, and they were praying about people all over the world that had never heard the good news that God loved them. And in the background, there's like 40 or 50 people that this guy works with every day, and probably most of them had never heard what he was so concerned that people around the world heard. 
And the irony is not lost on me that sometimes we're so concerned about the other person hearing that we don't even share it with our own family members and our own people we work with and our own neighbors and our own friends and our own teammates and our own classmates. We're so concerned about, what about the person in Africa that's never heard about Jesus? You know, where do they stand before God? Hey, what about the person in Santa Ana? What about the person in Irvine? What about the person in Tustin or in Villa Park or in Orange? What about that person? We get so concerned about people we don't know, we don't care about the people we do. Duh. See, Paul had this burden and this passion. He had a passion for the lost. He saw them as God saw them. His passionate concern for those without Christ found an echo on the heart of J. Hudson Taylor, 19th century English missionary to China who wrote these words. He said, I have a stronger desire than ever to go to China. That land is ever in my thoughts. Think about it. At that time, 360 million souls without God or hope in the world. Think of more than 12 millions of our fellow creatures dying every year without any of the consolations of the gospel. Barnsley, including the common. Barnsley, which is a city in England. Barnsley, including the common, has over 15,000 inhabitants. Imagine what if... Would be, what it would be if all of those here were to die in 12 months. Yet in China, year by year, hundreds are dying for every man, woman, and child in Barnsley, England. Robertson McQuelkin, from his book, The Great Omission, writes this. In a world in which nine out of ten people are lost, three out of four have never heard the way out, and one out of every two cannot hear, Christians sleep on. Could it be we think that there must be some other way? Or perhaps we don't really care that much. I was in the locker room this past season at the Angel, when the Angels were playing the Detroit Tigers and Damian Easley, who plays for Detroit, I was walking through their clubhouse and he called me aside and said, Chuck, do you got a minute? Can you come here a second? I said, sure. And they were having a conversation about the same thing I mentioned a second ago. I said, well, you know, are you going to tell me that people that have never heard the gospel are lost and condemned before God. I said, absolutely. And the reason is very clear. The Bible says through Adam, through Adam, sin entered into the world and with sin came death. And that the wages of sin is death and the soul that sins, it dies. The fact that each one of us dies, the fact that we are all indicted by God, we're born into the world with sin stamped under our conscience and our soul and that we're separated from God. He says, well, what about, what if they don't hear and the question was, what is that supposed to mean? I said, what if you were diagnosed with terminal cancer and nobody ever told you? Would that mean you'd still live? Or would you die? And as we had this conversation, it became very apparent. And one of the guys we were talking to said, well, then we should make every effort that we can to tell people about Jesus. And it was like a light clicked on, the first time ever in his life. If people are lost and condemned, even if they don't hear, think about it logically. If a person's not lost or condemned before God, and the only way that we become condemned is when we hear that God loves us and sent Christ to die for us, and then we reject what God's plan is, and then we become lost at that point, then wouldn't we be better off not sharing the gospel with anybody? Why put them on the spot to have to make a decision? 
But if we're all lost to begin with, and we are all condemned, for God so loved the world, He sent His only begotten Son of the world, so that whoever would believe in Him would not be perished, but have everlasting life. It goes on and says, and God didn't send Jesus into the world to condemn it, because the world's already condemned. He sent Him to save it, to seek and to save that which was lost. We're all lost. We're all on our way to hell. We all need forgiveness. We all need to trust in Christ. He's the only hope. He's the only remedy of God. He's the only plan. He's the only way to get to heaven through Him and Him alone. And so therefore, even if we don't hear, we're still lost. Therefore, we have to have a sense of urgency to tell people that there is hope. That there is a remedy. You are sitting next to people at your office who are going to hell until you have enough courage and confidence and belief in the word of God to share with them their only hope is to trust in Jesus Christ. You will sit around the Thanksgiving table with your family and friends who are lost and condemned before God. And you know the way out of hell. I would encourage you and implore you to have the right passion to share with them the remedy that God has provided. Paul cared. He had an intense passion for those without Christ. And so should we. But such passion cannot be learned by studying methods. Such passion is not learned by studying how to present the four spiritual or nine spiritual or 37 spiritual laws to people. Such passion only comes from knowing Christ and Him crucified. And his love for sinners that he gave himself up. Such passion only comes from knowing Christ and knowing the word of God. And knowing the truth. See, those guys in that locker room had no passion for lost people because they didn't know the fundamental truth of the word of God that all are lost and need a savior. There was no sense of urgency to tell people until he heard, well, if everyone's lost... We need to get more excited and, and have a sense of urgency about reaching people. Exactly. But an ignorance of Scripture keeps us apathetic. Why do we sleep on? Either because we haven't come to know Christ ourselves, or we haven't come to know the truth of the Word of God, that without hearing, faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. Paul cared. He had an intense passion for people. He had the right passion. Do you? I ask myself, do I? And with that passion also came something else that's important. And that is that he also had the right priority. He had the right priority. Notice in Acts chapter 15, verse 36, it says... And some days, and after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let's return, visit the brethren in every city in which we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Think about it. Paul is the greatest evangelist the world had ever known, and, he certainly, and yet he certainly doesn't fit the modern stereotype. Modern conception of evangelists is this. They come into the city, they present the gospel, people come to faith in Christ, then they leave and move to the next city. And they leave it up to somebody else to make sure that those people grow in their faith kind of follow-up, which is fine. But you know what's interesting? From a biblical example that we have in the Apostle Paul, you know what? He always cared about those who had come to faith in Christ. He said, let's visit the brethren. And the brethren refers to those who had embraced the gospel, who had accepted the good news, who believed that they were sinners, who re repented from their sin, who trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of their sin, believing he died and believing he rose from the dead. And they were born again from above. They became children of God to those who believe in his name. He's saying, let's go back and check on them and see how they're doing. 
Let's make sure that he said, hey, so, so we know what's going on so that they're growing in their faith. What motivated Paul to leave Antioch to go back on this trip that he had been on and had been subjected to much opposition and even physical and personal danger? What subjected him or motivated him to go back to see how these people were doing? First of all, he reveals to us that he loved them. He loved these people. He was genuinely concerned about these people. To the Thessalonians, he wrote, For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you wasn't in vain. He says, But after we had already suffered, been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. He says, For our exhortation doesn't come from error or impurity or by way of deceit, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. He says, we never came with flattering speech, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is our witness. Nor do we see glory from men, either from you or from others, even though as apostles of Christ we may have or might have asserted our authority. He says, but we prove to be gentle among you, as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. Having thus a fond affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives. Because you had become very dear to us. Did you notice that? He wasn't just concerned that those people would believe and receive Christ as their Savior. He was concerned about them as people. Not just their eternity, but also their their, their temporary condition here on earth. He said, you know, I care about them. One of the things that we have to demonstrate as we share the good news of God's love for people is to love them and care for them and be concerned about them. Hey, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. You shall be saved. Great. Well, that's wonderful. You know, and then their life's a total mess because of decisions that they made or consequences and poor decisions or just, you know, the, the inevitable consequences of living this side of heaven. And yet we don't step in to help out. First John 3 says, how can the love of God dwell in us if we behold a brother in need and we don't do anything about it? If you're going to share the gospel, share your life. I can relate to that. If you've ever been in a, in a wonderful position of having God use you to lead another person to Christ, you know what it is to see them being born again, to become a child of God. You know what it is to feel or care about whether they're growing in their faith. As I was reading this this past week, God put on my heart six or seven guys that I've known throughout my life who I was fortunate enough to see them come to faith in Christ and to spend some time and email them and ask them how they're doing and how their walk with the Lord is and what they're involved in and what's going on. Just to encourage them in their faith and in their walk, saying, hey, you know what? Keep up the good work. Be steadfast and immovable. Fight the good fight. We're in a spiritual battle, but it's okay because we've won. To encourage them. See, that's all that he was doing was saying, we need to go back and encourage them. And the second motive was touched on in 1 Thessalonians 2. He says that, you know what? So that you may walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom. Think about it. God's goal for every one of us is not just that we're born again and become children of God so that our eternity is secure, which it is, but his goal for every one of us Not only that we become a child of God, but that we grow to be men and women of God who are capable, mature and capable of what? Reproducing ourselves. 
of making disciples. We're growing, we bring another person along, and we teach them what it means to grow and walk in a manner worthy of their calling so that ultimately they can turn around and do the same thing and they can make disciples and they can share the gospel and they can reach others for the kingdom of God. It's not enough that you just are born again. It's not enough that we are just children of God. It is not enough, and that isn't what God is satisfied with. He wants us to become men and women of God, mature and complete, lacking in nothing. I challenge guys all the time. It's like, you know what's amazing to me? I talk to professional athletes say, you know what? You're never content just being on a team. You're never content with limited playing time. A kid as a freshman in high school wants to be on the JV, and a kid on JV wants to be on varsity. And a kid in single A in Major League Baseball wants to be on double A or triple A, or he wants to make the Major League. No one's ever content with not growing in what they do. You don't want to be an assistant. You want to be the executive. You don't want to be an assistant of an assistant. You want to be the assistant that is now having an assistant that you can tell to go get your coffee and stuff. You know, that's what you want. Nobody is content on just being here. Everybody wants to be here. But when it comes to our walk with God, it's like, oh, just glad to be in the kingdom of God. Just glad to be a child of God. That's fine enough with me. You know, i got other things I need to do. What are you talking about? God's goal is that he conforms us into the image of his son. And until you and I are like Jesus, he's got a lot of work to do. See, Paul wanted to see how they were to see if they were growing in their faith. Any parent who has a child who is still acting like a child and showing no signs of growth, should have a flag or sense of urgency to find out what is wrong with the development of my child. It's okay when a two-year-old, you know, goes potty and has you come in to look so you can all go, yay! But when our kids were teenagers, I didn't want to see it ever again. (laughs) Hey, Dad, come and look at this one. No! I don't care to see it. Thank you for sharing that. You know what I'm saying? There are some things that are cute when you're immature, and there are other things that are disgusting when you get mature, supposedly. That's the point. Don't be content on coming and saying, hey, hey, grow in your faith. That's what he's trying to tell us. Now, what's interesting is, he also talks about the right personnel. You know, we've got the right passion, which is a love for the lost, the right priority, which is growth for those who have come to faith. And then he introduces us in this particular passage to the right personnel. Notice this, and this gets really interesting. He says, and Barnabas was desirous of taking John, called Mark, along with them. But Paul kept insisting they should not take him along, who had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to do the work. Okay? They all agree, people need to hear the gospel. So... Then they decide, well, who's going to go? And what happened was that Barnabas said, hey, I want to take Mark. You know, I know he messed up last time. He bailed on us. But you know what? Let's give him another chance. He is my cousin. And you know, it'll make it a lot easier around Thanksgiving dinner table. So so he kind of threw that out. There, There was no Thanksgiving then, okay? Just say, are you paying attention or not? There you go. Good. So... So then he says, hey, I want to take him. And, and uh, you know, and uh, Paul says, no, you're not going to take him. It says Barnabas was desirous. The word meant that he was insistent or adamant. He said, he's coming with us. And Paul said, no, he's not. Barnabas said, yes, he is. Paul said, no, he's not. Barnabas said, yes, he is. You know what? We can give him another chance. Barnabas, and Paul said, no, I'm not giving him another chance. He bailed on us. He threw us under the bus when we were going through a difficult time. We can't trust him. Leave him home. He, you know, we, we just don't want to waste our time doing it. Barnabas was like the son of encouragement. What do you expect? The guy's like, come on, you know, it's going to be okay. And Paul's like, no. And it said that they were going back and forth and there was a sharp disagreement. 
These two godly men who were just used by God to bring about a unity in the church over the subject of how we're saved through grace, through faith, now can't agree upon who's going to go share the good news. They were fighting about who was going. Barnabas, as I said, was a son of encouragement. Barnabas, you know, you've got to vote for Barnabas with your heart. Hey, we all mess up. Let's give the guy another chance. Paul said, hey, you know what, though? But this is a very serious thing, and we need to teach him a lesson. That, you know what, you don't make a commitment and bail on it. That your yes be yes and your no be no. And we've got to teach him a lesson. Let's leave him behind this time, and we'll see if he's learned something. And they had this sharp disagreement. You know, and as I was reading through this, I began to realize that, you know what? There was an intense, passionate conflict over this. Now, a lot of people go, well, who was right? You know what? doesn't matter. really doesn't matter. really doesn't make any difference. Perhaps both of them were right in some areas, both of them were wrong in other areas. We know that the church commended Paul and Silas when they left. We can, we'll leave it at that. But the, the idea behind all this is this. The truth is, even the best Christians don't always agree. Sometimes good Christians intensely disagree. And usually what happens is, is that the one person that holds one position thinks there's something wrong with the person holding the other position as if something's wrong with them spiritually. And a lot of times, you know what, they just see things differently. Barnabas saw that, you know what, we're going to give this guy another chance. Paul saw that, you know what, this is a very serious warfare that we're in and I want to have soldiers behind me that aren't going to desert me in a time of crisis. They both saw things from a different perspective. And you know what? And neither one of them were wrong per se. We need to recognize and understand that, you know what? They're men, just as you and I are men and women. We're not perfect. We don't always do the right thing. We allow the Lord to lead us and we make judgment calls and sometimes people will disagree. And that's just the way that it is. Martin Luther had this self-evaluation of, uh, uh, that, he, uh, that he talked of himself. He says, I am rough, boisterous, stormy, and altogether warlike, fighting against innumerable monsters and devils. I am born for the removing of stumps and stones, cutting away thistles and thorns, and clearing wild forests. His point was this. Some of the most godly people the church has ever known were really rascals when you got to know them personally. That's the truth. I had a friend that said to me one time, he said, Chuck, whatever you do, never get to know your heroes. Because you'll see them for who they really are. See, we're all fallen. But we're all saved by grace through faith. I guarantee you that if we got to know the heroes, those firemen and police officers that went into the World Trade Center, we know them for a heroic act and we recognize them for that and we thank them for what they do. But if we really knew them individually and we talked to their wives or their husbands or their children or their friends or their families, we would find the same thing is true of them that is true of all of us, that we all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And none of us are righteous and none of us are perfect but God. We need a Savior. Paul needed a Savior. Barnabas needed a Savior. You need a Savior. And so do I. There was a sharp disagreement. And I guess the important lesson of all of this is this. Paul chose Silas and departed. Barnabas took Mark and went with him. But both of them, both teams, were committed to sharing the good news of God's love and grace through faith are we saved. 
They didn't get along. They couldn't decide on who was making up the team. But you know what? God's greater purpose would still be accomplished because both groups were committed to Jesus Christ as their Lord and their Savior. The life lesson in all of this is this. That was a failure on their part. You'll never find anywhere that the Bible says, you know what, and it seemed good to them. Or it seemed good to them and the Holy Spirit. Or we prayed about this and this is the conclusion we came to. You will never find any commendation of God for what had taken place here. But God used their failures nonetheless to accomplish His greater purpose of reaching the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. You will never find a perfect pastor. You will never find a perfect missionary. You will never find a perfect full-time Christian servant. Because we're all flawed. But thank God for His grace and His mercy and His compassion and His unconditional love. And while we're faithless, He's faithful. But you know what? We need to keep our eyes on Jesus and keep our eyes on the Word of God. Because if we look at one another, we will fall. We'll fail and we'll give up. Paul then is introduced to a disciple by the name of Timothy. Timothy will begin to take on a very important role in his life. He came was traveling through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. He came also to Derbe and to Lystra. And behold, a certain disciple was there named Timothy. Notice this. He's a son of a Jewish woman who was also a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brethren who were in Lystra and Iconium. And Paul wanted this guy to go with him. Isn't that great? He's backtracking on where he was before. Timothy had came to faith, trusted in Christ, when Paul had been there presenting the gospel the first time. He now goes back to see how they're doing. He comes across a young guy, probably 19 or 20 years old, and says, Wow, you know what? I want this guy to come with me. He will be a tremendous asset to us. So he goes and he, and, he, and he finds him and he says, hey, we want you to come with us. And one of the things that you notice is that he's well spoken of. He's got a great reputation. He's got all the qualifications that are necessary. Everyone was talking about this young kid and how he was growing in his faith. And man, this guy is growing leaps and bounds. And so what Paul did, he said, I want you to go with us. And what's interesting about this is there's some lessons that I want to share with you. And first one is this. Notice this, that I want to talk to parents whose spouse is not a believer. And I'll say not a believer yet. And the reason for that is this, that you can make a positive impact for Christ on your child or your children's. If you are committed to train up your child in the way that he or she should go, when they're old, they won't depart from it. God will still bless your efforts despite any opposition that you have at home. Eunice and Lois, he was, this kid came from a mixed family, so to speak. His mom and his grandmother came to faith in Christ. His father had not, he had since died. Okay, first thing, they made an impact on this kid's life. The second, for every grandmother and grandfather out there, great-grandmother or great-grandfather, hey, you know what? Grandma Lois made an impact in this kid's life. You and I can do the same thing. Train a child in the way that he should go. Live out a godly example. Teach him the things of God, the Word of God, living it out. You can make an example when even the home that they live in primarily may be far from God. You can make a difference. It's also important as parents to learn another principle, and that's this. Think about this. This kid's 19 or 20 years old. His father's dead. Mom and grandma are a very important part of his life. Paul comes to him and says, we want him to go. And you know what they said? That's okay with us. See, the goal of parents is always this. We train up our children in the way they should go. 
as they mature and as they grow, they should become less dependent upon us and more dependent upon God in their lives for the decisions they have to make. There's a point where you and I as parents have to let go and allow God to lead our children in the way that He wants them to go. Not to be a hindrance, not to be a stumbling block, but to step aside and say, if God is leading you in that direction, then we will pray with you, we will pray for you, we will encourage you to be men and women of God, to follow His leading in your life. And let me tell you something, that wasn't easy for these ladies to do because they remembered when Paul was at Derby and Lystra that he had been stoned and he had been left for dead. They knew that him going with Paul would subject him to possible treatment much the same that Paul had experienced. That this kid may be given the kiss of death, but also the blessing of God all at the same time. And they let him go. The right personnel. Notice also here, they had the right precautions, which is pretty interesting. It says that Paul circumcised Timothy. The reason that he circumcised him was because, hey, you know what happened? Um... He, was, he came from a Jewish home and a Gentile home. He was afraid that if he went into the Jewish synagogues that they would believe that he had repudiated Judaism, that he had embraced the lifestyle of a Gentile, that he had went on and said, hey, listen, you know what? Paul circumcised him. Now, some of us go, well, he, we just had a big argument about being circumcised. He didn't circumcise to save him. He was already saved. He circumcised him so that he would reach others and that wouldn't be a hindrance or any kind of stumbling block. It was the principle that he said in 1 Corinthians 9, For though I'm a free man, I'm free from all men, I made myself a slave to all, that I might win the more. He said, hey, i got to do whatever I have to do in order that I can present the gospel to people. And all i got to say is this, ouch, but praise God. You know what I'm saying? It's kind of like, wow, you know? I mean, think about it. Wow, you know, and some of us, we, we can't go, we can't even go a step out of our way to introduce people to Christ. It's like, well, i got my rights. You know what? Give them up. The law of liberty, give them up so that you can win others to Christ. There is nothing more important. Think about this. This kid, 19 or 20 years old, Paul says, come here, we got to do something. <laughs> you know, tell me he didn't know what he was getting into when he was about. I said, what? All right. Well, if you think that's what we got to do to win people to Christ, there's nothing more important in this life. And that's exactly what he did. The right presentation. Notice in 16, 4 and 5. It says, now while they were passing through the cities, they were de- delivering the decrees that had been decided upon about the el- apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were being strengthened in the faith and they were increasing in number. What's the right message that we're to share with anyone who's lost? It's by grace you're saved through faith and not of yourself. It's a gift from God, not of works, so that no one can boast before God. All religions are the same, except Christianity. God's done it all through the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. You accept Him and believe on Him, and you shall be saved. They were strengthened by that message. They were increasing in number. The goal of evangelism is not to increase in numbers. Increasing in numbers is a byproduct of being obedient and sharing the gospel with people who embrace the Lord Jesus Christ. And then the last thing that we'll notice in verses 6 6 through 10, they were at the right place. The right people at the right place with the right priorities and the right passion sharing the right message, the right presentation, the right place at the right time. They passed through the Phrygian and Galatian region having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. When they had come to Mysia, they were trying to go into Bithynia and the Spirit of Jesus did not permit them. Permit them. And passing by Mysia, they came down to Troas and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A certain man of Macedonia was standing and appealing to him saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. You ever want to know how God leads sometimes? Here's how he leads. He gives you an impression to follow a certain direction that doesn't conflict with the revealed will of God and his word. 
You start to move in a certain direction, he closes a door. You start to move in another direction, he closes another door. You start to move in another direction, he closes another door. And what he does is he closes every door but the one he wants you to go through. That's how we know God's will. That's how we know God leads. And when he saw a vision, he was led by the Spirit and he immediately responded. Notice that. We need to have a vision and passion for people. We need to see people as God sees them as lost hopelessly without any remedy until they come to faith in Christ. When God impresses upon our hearts through the Holy Spirit that this person needs to hear the gospel, we're not only to have a vision for them, we're to be led by the Spirit to that person and immediately, without any hesitation, deliver the message that God has entrusted to each one of us. We have hope, those who know Christ. We have the answer to the problem of sin and death and eternal consequence. We know the way out. We have been entrusted with the greatest news that any individual can ever hear. That there is no other name given unto men by which men can be saved than the Lord Jesus Christ. For those who receive him, he's given the privilege to be called children of God to those who believe in his name. Last time we were together, the message was that we would all be in heaven one day for those who believe by the grace of God and his grace alone through faith. That none of us can work our way there. A friend of mine came up to me afterwards, and I want to close by putting all of this together with this letter that somebody had written to him almost 11 years ago that he has in his wallet even to this day. Although actually he doesn't have it in his wallet to this day because I have it right here. He will have it once again in his wallet when I give it back to him. But I want to read this to you because it ties everything in. It ties a sense of urgency in sharing the good news, the greatest news that anybody could ever hear. It ties in with the fact that it's by grace we're saved through faith. But he's carried this with him for the last 11 years and here's why. Dear Steve, I've been thinking about you a lot and it seems as though God has put you on my heart and mind whenever I pray or read my Bible. You're like a brother to me, and if anything ever happened to you, I would feel ashamed that after all these years, I hadn't shared what God would, would have wanted me to. I don't think you realize how much God truly loves you and how he wants you to believe in him and have a relationship with him. You probably look at Christians as not much different than yourself. You see that they aren't perfect and no better off than you. The only thing different between you and I is that when I sin, my sins are covered by Jesus and I'm made clean because he does that for everyone who believes in him. He says, God said in his word, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes unto the Father except through him. Steve, the life we now live is like one grain of sand compared to all the grains of sand in the world. Eternity lasts forever and ever. It has no end. The decision you make concerning your faith in Jesus will affect not only the hereafter, but also the present. I can only tell you that without his love, compassion, care, grace, and mercy, I couldn't even imagine living. What could be the purpose? I pray that God's spirit would touch your heart and mind. I pray that every waking moment he would be convincing you and allowing you to see the truth. That there is no other name under heaven given to men by God than Jesus to be saved. He is the only one who saves. I hope you understand that you don't have to change without Jesus no one can. I won't get to heaven by being good, reading my Bible, or being the most kind person in the world. It is only by His grace that I have received a right standing before God. For when He died on the cross, He took my place and all of my sins, past, present, and future. 
What an awesome gift he gives to all who trust in him and the power of his resurrection. Steve, he wants wants you to have life, not death. He loves you beyond your understanding more than you even love your family. He made you just so he could love you. Think about these things. Pray that if God is real, that he would make himself known to you. The fear of man brings a snare, but he who trusts in the Lord will be exalted. Have you trusted in him and him alone for the forgiveness of your sins? Have you encouraged others to do the same? Show them that you care, as this person did to a friend 11 years ago, who ultimately, because of the seed that was planted in his heart by the word of God, came to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and carries that letter with him every day as a constant reminder of a friend who cared, but more importantly, of a God who demonstrated his love for him that even when he was a sinner, he sent Christ to die for him. Will you take a chance? And I don't even know why it is a chance or why it's such a great risk because when we have good news, we can't wait to share it. How much more should we share this with those lost around us? Father, thank you for your word, for the clarity of your message. May we become people as bold as this person who wrote this letter, who cared so much and had a sense of urgency for someone that was cared for in their life. God, help us to be like Paul and Silas and Barnabas and and John Mark and Timothy who was willing to even sacrifice some of his own personal rights so that others would not be offended so he could share the gift of salvation through Christ and him alone. Lord, we thank you that it's by grace we've been saved through faith and not of ourselves that it is a gift of God offered to all who would believe. And we just praise you in Christ's wonderful name. Amen.